Hello, and welcome to season two of We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. You know, I'm a posh blonde London girl with a lisp, and I'm never going to be Johnny Cash. However, Johnny Cash has told me to be who I am, so i just got to really work out what that is. Everybody's grandma loves her. Three-year-olds love her. Everybody loves her. There's nothing not to love. I mean, for me, he encapsulates the whole thing of just being so phenomenally gifted and so phenomenally oppressed and so phenomenally generous and kind and funny and furious and loving all at once. She is the person who knows where to get you 5,000 coffins and what kind of coffin. She has an address book full of morticians who can fly at five minutes notice to wherever it may be. He was an alcoholic and he sobered up and then died anyway of the results of long-term alcoholism. But he did sober up. My guest today is Louisa Young, novelist, songwriter, short story writer, biographer and journalist whose work has appeared in 32 languages. Her books include the memoir, You Left Early, A True Story of Love and Alcohol, and her latest novel, 12 Months and a Day, which was published in June this year. Hello, Louisa, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know you've heard a few because Susie Boyd, who is a mutual friend of ours, was one of my guests on the last season. So you know what the format is. We talk about people's heroes, heroines, icons, however you want to describe them. And through this conversation, people reveal quite a lot about themselves. Bet they do. I was kind of banking on that when I had the idea. Thankfully, it's worked out so far. So who is the first person that you'd like to discuss and why have you chosen this particular person? Well, being me, the first thing I have to do is define terms, because whenever I get into a conversation with anybody, there's always the risk that they mean one thing and you mean another, and the next thing you know, you're having a kind of intellectual fisticuffs about stuff where actually you probably completely agree with each other. So first I was just sitting around, actually I've been thinking about it all week, what is a hero to me? And there are so many different things it can be. It can be the very personal hero. I mean, there's everybody's heroes that we all share, that we all know they're the hero, you know, Nelson Mandela, for example. But then there's the very individual thing, the very personal one. So rather than kind of run through a, an obvious list of just tremendously fine human beings that we all really admire, I thought I'd actually go for the very personal ones, which for me tend to be either as an emotional example or somebody who's really got me going professionally, who's just inspired me or directly helped me to get over this stuff that allowed me to be 
you know, as heroic as I can manage in my own everyday existence. Because, you know, we we do want to be heroes. We can all be heroes, even if it's just for one day. So go ahead. <laughs> Would we ever notice the day on which we were being heroes? Probably not until 10 years later, you'd look back and think, God, maybe that was a bit heroic. Anyway, so my first hero, the first person who sprang to mind, and it's a purely selfish choice because he made me do something, is Johnny Cash. This came about because a long time ago, I was a journalist. This was in the 1980s when nobody liked country music except for me. And I loved country music and I still do. So in the 80s, suddenly there was this thing of new country and nobody was really in England were very impressed by that. But I was working for a magazine. I said, I am, I am. I want to go. So they sent me off to Nashville, where I got to interview all kinds of new and actually old country people, including Tammy Wynette, Lyle Lovett, Dwight Yoakam, but more particularly, Johnny Cash. After he was Johnny Cash, the young man, but before he was the grandfather of, of Americana, so he was not a big cheese at that time. His record company, I, I think, had dropped him. So he had various journalists interviewing him English journalists who weren't that interested really they just wanted a freebie and I was the last one so I interviewed him at the end of the day and I was just completely besotted with him I couldn't believe it I was in his house I was sitting on his sofa looking at June's collection of crystal in their glass fronted cabinets it soon became apparent that he didn't really want to talk very much he was kind of tired what I asked him was so are you still the man in black and he started to explain to me like for the 900 million billion trillionth time the significance of the lyrics to the song about how he wears the black for the poor and the downtrodden and the victims of oppression and so on and so I was like no no I know all that what I'm thinking is are you still because obviously that was a 60s kind of protesty song and here we are in 1988 do you still feel the same way and he was kind of pleased that I actually knew what the song was about and said, yeah, I do. And I said, you know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And we got chatting. And the next thing, I mentioned some song of his that I really loved. And he said, oh, you like that one, do you? And he reached for his guitar and he sang it for me. You know, these are the days where you think, no, really? Me? Johnny Cash? And then... um Oh, we started talking about John Steinbeck and, uh, you know, and I'm saying, oh, you know, you, you know, you read The Grapes of Wrath and you said, honey, I lived The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> and then we we're talking about a song by Chris Christopherson called, you know, Here Comes That Rainbow Again. He says, oh, you like that one, do you? And he played that. And then, yeah, what else do you like? I said, I really like Tennessee Flat Top Box. And he tells me how Roseanne went to record it one day and she didn't know who'd written it. And she comes home and he's like, yeah, that was me. Actually, I wrote it. And we just had a lovely, lovely time. Or at least I did. I think I think he quite liked it too, you know, just playing to this, this girl who was totally agog. And June came down the stairs and was saying, you know, you're right there, Johnny. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to move in. You can be my mum and dad. But in the course of the conversation, one of the things that he said to me was, you've got to be what you are. Whatever you are, you have to be it. And I was at the time reaching that stage of journalism when I'm thinking, oh God, you know, is that all there is? I was 29 and didn't really know what to do with myself. I was about to be 30 and what had I achieved and was this, all that, all that stuff that you get around that time of life where you think you're half dead because you're nearly 30. 
And that just kind of gave me permission. One, it gave me permission to kind of admit who I was and stop pretending that I was anything else. Because, you know, I wanted to be Johnny Cash or Chris Christopherson or some other kind of, you know, a musician, basically, and a man and ideally American or kind of classless or something. But then it was like, well, OK, I have to admit what I am. You know, I'm a posh, blonde London girl with a lisp and I'm never going to be Johnny Cash. However, Johnny Cash has told me to be who I am. So I just got to really work out what that is. And I realised that although I couldn't be Johnny Cash, I didn't have to be the person interviewing other people. I really, really had to admit I wanted to be the person who got interviewed. I wanted to produce the work that was interesting enough and that other people would want to know what I thought. So I wasn't just asking them, even though it was journalism that had given me this lovely opportunity of interviewing Johnny Cash. He gave me permission yeah. to go off and become effectively a writer. So I went home and, you know, wrote my first book and became a writer of books. And every time I get any decent work done, I think, thanks, Johnny, because I might not have got off my arse. I might have, but I might very well not have. And I trace getting off my arse to Johnny Cash telling me to get off my arse because you can't not do what he tells you to do. The advice he gave you reminds me of a famous quote. I'm not sure who first said it. I think it's been attributed to Quentin Crisp and also Dolly Parton. But the quote is something along the lines of the key to finding happiness in life is to work out who you are and then to do it on purpose. Yeah, exactly. And it's the equivalent, I imagine, of um, coming out to your family or something. It's just like, OK, I might wish that I with something else, but I am what I am. I am what I am. I used to share a house with my straight female cousin. We were both in our early 20s. And I remember at the time, because I was going through the whole coming out to the family stuff, which was very difficult initially. But I remember saying to her, everybody needs to come out. It's not about being gay. It's about telling your parents that you are the person that you are. And that may not be the person that they want or expect you to be. And everyone needs to do that. And in order to be yeah. able to do that, you need to know. And that's the thing, I suppose, about being young is that you're really not sure. There are so many moving parts and so many possibilities still. And you might be something for, you know, a little while yeah. and then think, oh, well, maybe that wasn't really me, you know, that goth stage or whatever it might be. But then the true self starts to emerge and people who help your true self to emerge so that leads me on to my second thing about Johnny Cash is that because he was like that with me it made me realize the obligation as you get older if you've been able to do that you know to find your little your little fire and you know light it from behind the bushel or whatever you have an obligation to do that for other people and when you see you know, young writers wanting to become writers or young women not being sure about how to be women or young whoever it is, a great, great part of your job, once you're capable of it, but, you know, certainly once you're over 40, is to hold out your damn hand and give someone else that possibility by example, by passing the mic, by being kind, by giving them a sofa to sleep on, you know, whatever it might be. That, to me, is a heroic thing. And particularly, I realise what's almost the most heroic thing of all for me is when somebody has had every bloody obstacle put in their way and they manage to find the ability, the patience, the generosity, the wisdom, whatever it is, to look that, at that obstacle, climb around it, step over it, maybe even push it out of the way a little bit, get to where they want to be to fulfil themselves and then reach out the hand 
Yeah. You know, not the people who pull up the ladder, it's all fine now, I'm all right, Jack, but the ones who get there, remember how hard their journey was. And this is particularly important to me because my journey was not hard. I didn't have any terrible things to overcome. I had a very nice family and loving parents and there was, you know, no question but that, you know, the dinner would be on the table and all those kinds of things. I mean, apart from putting up with the shit that all women have to put up with, other stuff, you know, all the basics are in there to mean that you're prepared when shit happens later in life, as it always does. You're kind of prepared for it. The very first episode of this podcast was with Joelle Taylor and she, like me had a very, very difficult childhood, upbringing, young life, and also, like me, couldn't find a platform, so had to basically go and create her own, rather like I did with Polari, she did with Outspoken. She said something really, really beautiful about the obligation, the duty that one has to help the next generation of people coming up and not to pull up the ladder behind you. And she said, the pen isn't just a pen. Mm -hmm. And the microphone isn't just a microphone, it's a baton. We have to help each other, you know. We really have to help each other wherever we can. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I think with what you're doing here, you're definitely doing that. And it, I mean, I don't want to sound self-congratulatory here because I'm as lazy as the next person. But it seems to me that the understanding that that needs to be done, on the one level it's heroic, but on the other level it should be entry level. It should be entry-level decent behaviour. I was really impressed the other day on the radio that was um, Mary Beard talking about giving up her professorship, you know, and as it were, retiring. But obviously, you know, she's Mary Beard, so she's not going to retire. She's going to be doing all sorts of other things. But she spoke really sweetly about how actually it was... She was very happy to do it because she... I think she referred to herself as a potential job blocker and that because she could leave the job, she didn't need the money, she didn't need the kudos, she didn't need the status, she's got all that. But by moving on, she's basically kind of stirring up the chain so that lots of other people who are earlier on in their careers can have an opportunity then to get a new job, to be promoted, to start doing some other thing. that Because she's like a plug Brilliant. that she's pulled out the top of her life and then everyone else can shift around and move up, which they wouldn't have been able to do if she hadn't had that kind of graciousness because uh, I mean a lot of the time when you get older you're thinking oh god you know again is that it help am I, am I you know am I done am I just like a dried out old husk now I've got nothing more to achieve but of course what we need to do still always through life is recognize what our job is at this stage and it you know it it, it changes I'm trying to persuade myself that I'll be happy if no book by yeah. me is ever published again because there are younger writers that could do with the opportunity now not being a saint or a liar I'm not going to claim that I've actually got my not that Buddhist head around that idea of course I want to carry on publishing till the day I die I met a writer of 90 the other day and I was saying you know and I sort of said not quite joking but almost sort of you know so what are you working on and she said oh well I've just delivered my book on blah and it's coming out next March and I'm like go you madam go you excellent well Johnny Cash is a very very good person to have in this conversation and somebody that hasn't come up before I grew up in a house with country music because my stepdad is a huge country and western fan so I did grow up with lots of that music in the house and I remember in the 80s when I came to London in the mid 80s, I met a whole bunch of lesbians 
and country and western was very big with the lesbians in the Ooh, 80s. Katie Lang. <laughs> Ooh, we're all in love with Katie, lesbian or not. Gosh, what a bird. Uh, yeah. So who is the next person that you'd like to nominate? Well, I think I have to go direct because one of the reasons that I love Johnny above all country and western is that you can be pretty sure that he wasn't a racist. And with the rest of them, much as you love them, you can't, you know, given the geography and the chronology, certainly in the old days, you can't be sure that they wouldn't have been racist. But I'm going to move straight to James Baldwin, who I know has been mentioned before. And, you know, how could he not be? I mean, for me, he encapsulates the whole thing of just being so phenomenally gifted and so phenomenally oppressed and so phenomenally generous and kind and funny and furious and loving all at once, all at once. You know, you watch him, you read him and that little flash of his eyes going sideways and it's all there. The more you read him and the more you find out about how he lived and the choices that he made and the things that he did and had to do, he's right about everything. And you think you've got as far as you can go in some thoughts about something. And James Baldwin will be there with a slightly indulgent sigh and he will pick up yet another rock from the pile and move it aside and say, but we need to think about this. And, he, you know, he's the one who can say, you know, racism is not a problem for black people. It's a problem of America. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember reading If Beale Street Could Talk when I was 18 or 19. And I'm afraid to say that my first novel that I started writing when I was about 21 opens with the line, if Robertson Street could talk, <laughs> that being the street that I was living in at the time. Um, you know, he he started with nothing except a massive golden heart and a phenomenal brain and, you know, a couple of teachers who were able to steer him the right way. And then he read everything and he learnt everything. For me, he's kind of the, the inventor of intersectionalism as well. Absolutely. Well, you're not just one thing. And I remember when I was about 22, I met a guy whose father was Jewish and his mother was Irish Catholic, but one of them was mixed race as well. I think it was his dad. And he was gay and he was diagnosed bipolar. And so he sort of gives me this whole list of what he was. And I'm slightly dumbfounded by this. I mean, even now, I wouldn't know quite what to do with it. And he said, there's only one thing you need to take away from me. Everybody's got a reason to hate me. Everybody's going to hate one thing about me. But all these words, he said, are adjectives. They're not nouns. I'm not a gay. I'm not a manic depressive. I am not a black, a this, you know, all the words, they're adjectives. They're not nouns. And that, to me, was a big old lesson, which fitted together with the James Baldwin thing. I've actually got a quote from James Baldwin, which I wrote down for just this occasion. He was writing about a kind of literature which concerns theories and the categorisation of human beings. And however brilliant the theories and accurate the categorizations, they fail because they deny life. So that thing about, you know, the ambiguity, the paradox, the fact that you can do a hateful thing, it doesn't mean you're a hateful person. You know, we're all human beings and we create ourselves out of this great pile of ingredients. He's a kind of archangel. He's a huge hero of mine. I can remember first discovering is. him through Giovanni's room, obviously. Of course. And then sort of catching up with things and reading the non-fiction books and, and then later seeing clips of him on chat shows. And there was a clip of him, mm -hmm. on, I think it must have been Parkinson, 
and Parkinson was saying to him, so you're black, you're gay, you're Jewish. You must have thought, you know, you've really been lumbered. And he thought, I think I've won the jackpot. You can see that he would absolutely be a hero for people with whom he overlaps in those obvious sort of minority ways of being gay and being black and so forth. But the fact is that he can speak to absolutely everybody, people who have no experience of it. I mean, if I, you know, met a racist homophobe, I would just give them James Baldwin like a little, you know, like a sacrificial lamb on a plate and say, you know, look at this, listen to the, listen to this person and tell me that you can possibly think what you think because, you know, I, I don't want to have fisticuffs about stuff. I just want people to stop being horrid to each other. And it seems to me that we, you know, when James Baldwin can say that he never really managed to hate white people, given his family's experience and his experience. And you think that is an example to every bloody human being that ever exists. You know, don't hate the people, hate the behaviour, try and get them past and, and, and beyond those behaviours. But his patience, you know, over and over you see him, but he's not patient in any passive way. He's an avenging angel with a, with a heart of gold and a pen. <laughs> a pen like a, well, like a sword, really. But he uses it so judiciously. I, I mean, I adore him as a writer. I think he's one of the finest writers I've ever read. And his understanding about context and nuance and honesty, if in doubt, read some more James Baldwin. And you will. It, it's like a sort of well of, of, of the best that humanity can be. And it's the overcoming stuff as well, that, you know, when people can overcome all that, they can bring their talent with them. They can have faith enough and they can work hard enough with their talent. They produce the brilliant work that they're meant to produce. And they carry on being generous and reaching their hand out. So Dolly Parton is another one. You know, you read about her childhood and you see where she's gone and what she's done with it. And now she's like millions of quid for libraries for children up and down the country. And, you know... Let's fund, let's fund the COVID vaccine <laughs> and the fact that everybody loves her. I, I think there's a, a, a funny kind of correlation between James Baldwin and Dolly Parton. And if I was the sort of person to write a PhD, I might really want to look into that. Because the amazing thing about Dolly Parton is, you know, the worst, most horrible rednecks love her. Everybody's grandma loves her. Three-year-olds love her. Everybody loves her. There's nothing not to love. She's so tactful. And whenever anybody tries to call her out, say, you know, say, are you a feminist, Miss Parton? You know, she will just not get dragged into other people's squabbles. She will go high and express it slightly differently. You know, she'll talk about the emotions. She'll talk about something purer and more important than the kind of argumentative mud scraps that we seem to spend half our time having. You know, you won't find her on Twitter being, a, being an idiot. She's um, rising above. Yeah, double sainthood, Dolly Parton and James Baldwin. <laughs> I would happily have them as our gods and goddesses. That would be fantastic. I'm aware I've chosen entirely Americans for the actual three. Have you always been American which, um, in your heart? No, I find America really disturbing in, in many ways. And I've had some very disturbing times there. And, and I find American... Well, you know, there's a massive, great generalisation. I could be American in my heart if I could be, I don't know, Harpo Marx or Toni Morrison or, you know that kind of American. No, I'm a, I'm a big old uh, European Londoner. 
James lived in Paris for a while, didn't he? He to, did, uh, to escape those aspects of America that were simply, you know, impossible to live with. I mean, I've never lived anywhere that I'm hated. I've never felt hated, you know, and what a blessing and a privilege that is for me. I mean, I've, I've felt scared, obviously. I think many gay LGBT people's narrative is one of, of an exodus. It's the small town boy, the small town boy song. You have to leave the place where you were raised in order to find the love you're looking for. I was interested that when James Baldwin went back to New York, he didn't go back to Harlem, but he went instead to Greenwich Village. And it's a thing about New York that, you know, in the beginning, when Manhattan was sort of first setting itself up, it was very, very much by, by nationality, by where you've come from. And so you'd arrive and you'd go and find your cousins or your uncle. And so you had, you know, Harlem and you had Little Italy and Chinatown and all that. And so all the areas were racialized, except for Greenwich Village, which is where you went if your community chucked you out, which is why it was full of artists and yeah. gay people and musicians and people with mental illness and alcoholics and the people who wanted what they couldn't what they couldn't get at home and finding that love that shared love of being somebody that bit um i mean i hesitate to say different because everybody's different but not fitting so easily into the glove that you were born into and that's where he went back if you've got a few extra adjectives you know you, it's not just that you're you know, we're none of us just one thing. So what I really like, I wrote a little list, what I mean by a hero, what I find heroic personally. People who break cycles of damage, people who take their broken heart and turn it into art, people who can forgive other people, people who can help and enable other people to do the same thing, people who take their unfortunate circumstances and use them as fuel, and people who look further and deeper without judgment. I mean, it's always just, you know, the, the capacity to survive and be fruitful and be generous. I think that's what it comes down to. Who else would you like to talk about? Other people I find heroic. Uh, Lucy Easthope. Do you know about her? She's a very day-to-day -day heroic person. She wrote a book called When the Dust Settles. She's a disaster planner. And she started out working in an undertaker's and then moved to a company which basically, when you have a tsunami or a terrible earthquake, or a mass fire, you know, Grenfell Tower, or 9-11, or, you know, whatever terrible thing happens, what you need is a disaster planner. So she is the person who knows where to get you 5,000 coffins and what kind of coffin. She has an address book full of morticians who can fly at five minutes' notice to wherever it may be to sort out the practical issues. She has, you know, again, it's that thing of the wisdom, the patience, the holding it together when other people lose it. But it's so very practical. You know, she's not an artist. She's not a, I will write it all down or, or, or sing it. She will be there and she will sort it out. And so she goes in after the police and the emergency services and it's like, okay, we've got 9,000 houses awash with floodwaters up to the second floor and so this is what we need and this is how we need to do it we don't want to send everybody to stay with other people thousands of miles away we want to keep the community together and if that means they all have to be in caravans that's fine for the moment better to keep them together i mean she's basically been involved with every major disaster since 9 11 she's worked on it in one capacity or another and what a thing to give your life to to be able to do and then to sort of go home in the evening and you know, your husband says, how was your day, dear? And actually, you spent the whole day opening trunks of body parts that had been sent back from a war zone. 
opening a trunk and it's full of feet oh and God. it's your job to know what to do with it when all you get back is a foot and to make the emotional decisions for the living. Or, I find that unimaginable. Yeah, and yet there are people who do that every time. There are people whose job it is to go, oh, okay, right, I'm not going to bed early tonight. I'm getting on the phone and I'm getting an early flight and I'm going to go and help sort this out. So those people, you know, which is basically, you know, is a fireman a hero? Yes. Is a doctor a nurse? Yes, all of them. Everybody who did all that bloody homework in order to be qualified to help us when we are unable to help ourselves in every way. So there's her and... um yeah, another kind of hero, which um, we've talked about before, for me, um, and this is a very personal one, is my, my boyfriend Robert, who died. Robert Lockhart. He's a very talented man. But he he was an alcoholic, and he sobered up, and then died anyway of the results of long-term alcoholism. But he did sober up. And having lived very close to that, and with the... Uh, absolute terribleness of addiction when it's in its full flow that to me is heroic I think it was pretty heroic of me to be anywhere near it but for the people doing it going through it realizing and deciding that they can't finding the strength and the power in themselves to slog to their bloody meetings and find that possibility of getting their lives back and starting to mend all the hearts they'd broken and starting to find ways for themselves to heal and to help each other to heal. Again, it's that helping each other, doing it together, realising that you can't get by on your own. You need the help and also you need to give the help. And I used to go to AA meetings with him. I could just sit and watch all these people doing their darndest to do the right thing and to help each other and therefore help me. And after Robert died, I went to his meeting because he died just after his regular home Sunday meeting. And so I went to that meeting the next week and I, and I said to him, look, I'm Robert's girlfriend. Would it be all right if I spoke to you? Because, And they said, yeah. So I told them what had happened. And what I really wanted to say to them was, as the partner of an alcoholic who, was, who had sobered up and, you know, been sober for two years, a very wonderful thing, but to thank them for their contribution to his sobriety, because he wouldn't have been able to do it without them. And they probably don't realise that for every one of them, there was people at home, wives, husbands, partners, children, parents, who are incredibly grateful for the work that they put in, which basically, these total strangers to me, you know, they had changed my life and they probably never even thought of it. So... um that heroism of pulling yourself out and helping from the depths that addiction can take people to, that's heroic. I think the impact that one's addictions, and I'm speaking as somebody who's overcome several in my life, the impact that that behaviour and addictions have on those who love you and that you love can be so, so enormous. And part of overcoming your own addiction is also facing the shame that comes with that. Yeah, and being able to understand that, because, I mean, certainly for Robert, and I think for a lot of people, one of the big problems of sobering up is that then you can see what you've done, and then it's so horrifying that, you know, anybody would want to drink on that and go back to a kind of oblivion. 
so as not to face up to it. So that courage and of being able to realise and accept that, you know, these people do love you and they really do want you to be all right and that that's far more important than anything that happened while in the depths of the awfulness. Yeah, it's a, it's a big one. Well done. It is a big one, well and it's done. and I think it's still. Although I think as a culture we've we've moved on a lot, but the one thing I found is just how difficult it is to avoid alcohol in our culture. It's really difficult. And the fact that it's still advertised, like Jesus, do we not drink enough? I think we do. You know, the films and the telly yeah. and the songs and the plays, and but you know, it's it's particularly for the British. I mean, I've got this theory that none of us would ever have sex if we didn't have alcohol, and there would certainly never have been any babies born. And you know, it was compulsory. It's still kind of compulsory to go to a party and you know get given a glass of something for a toast or you know Christmas. It's like you know, drink, be sexy, be handsome, be attractive, drink. Yeah, what's wrong with you? Why don't you drink? My boyfriend doesn't drink. And he just doesn't drink because he doesn't like drinking. And he was getting this bombardment of, but why don't you drink? You know, it can't because it's expensive. You can afford it. You're solvent. Yeah. Why don't you drink? Why don't you want to drink? Another thing that happens, I don't know if you've noticed this, when people are alongside alcoholism, is you start wondering whether you are yourself an alcoholic. You know, how can you tell if you're an alcoholic or not? And normally the alcoholics are the last people thinking about whether or not they're alcoholic because they're too busy being alcoholic to be trying to define themselves and they don't want to think about it. But the bit of wisdom was, it's not what you drink, it's not how much you drink, it's why you drink and what it does to you. If exactly. I drink, I start singing and I tell everyone I love them. This is not the end of the world. What I don't do is make myself ill, trash the car, try and shag my boss's wife, you know, whatever it might be. I don't generally cause damage. I can tell now, I think I've got this far and I, I can tell I'm probably not an alcoholic, though I do drink and I like to drink. But no, I mean, basically it's an alcoholic society that we live in. If you took the tax that is made through the selling of alcohol out of our economy, what would happen? If you took the bars out of the cinemas and the hotels and the theatres, you know, our arts and catering industries would fall apart. Alcohol funds our society. My dad was in the Navy. They used to have to have a tot of rum, 11 o'clock every morning, you get your tot. And that was only phased out in the 1950s, I believe. You know, it was literally, you're in the Navy now, you should be drunk. The entire empire was built on, you know, drunk 19-year-olds being sent places. My granddad was in the Merchant Navy, and I remember when I was very little, he taught me the song, What Should We Do With A Drunken Sailor, <laughs> when I was a small child. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Put him in the scuppers with a hosepipe, so on him, <laughs> kill all him. And <laughs> yeah. But, you know, be, to remove alcohol from British society, I mean, it would be impossible. And the same, I think, with, with most Nordic societies. I mean, Scandinavia, Russia. What would Russia be like if suddenly there was no vodka? History would have been so, so different. So anyway, that's another kind of hero. Those who can manage to heal themselves. And, and, and those who are alongside it. I mean, I think that my daughter was quite heroic in uh, growing up normal and grounded and undamaged by all that. Well, pretty, pretty undamaged. So who are your heroes, apart from James Baldwin? Oscar Wilde is one of mine. When I came to London and I had my first gay experience and and then I had my heart broken by this man. I ended up in a flat that he was flat-sitting for a friend in East London, which I didn't know at all. I was in college in Strawberry Hill in Twickenham 
and I was in East London in this flat and couldn't go home. I hadn't told my parents where I was. I'd lied. So I was stuck there. And all I had to read was De Profundis by Oscar Wilde. <laughs> and it got me through that. Yeah. It got me through that week. Looking at the people that you've yeah. chosen as your heroes today, are there any common themes or lessons that you've learned from them or examples you've taken from them? Yeah, I think it's that thing of overcoming hardship and managing to do that in a way which you're not just working for yourself. It's not just that you overcome your hardship, make your billions and you're all right, Jack. They do tend mostly to be creative people. Most of the ones that I've chosen are, are creative people who manage to do that despite being one of 19 children brought up in a shack. They manage to do that and they manage to maintain this sort of almost ethical thing of I will not only produce my art while surviving this appalling oppression and lack of opportunity and lack of support, I will fulfil my art and I will make it possible for other people to fulfil theirs or to fulfil, you know, whatever their, you know, human existence is meant to be. It's breaking the cycle and being generous. That's perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and discussing these people with me. I feel all, you know, energised now by thinking about how great some people just can be. Just really great, you know. So I'm going to go off and try and be greater myself <laughs> just for one day. Go and be heroic. One day at a time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Louisa. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm really, I'm really chuffed to be asked. My thanks to Louisa for being such a great guest. And you can find out more about her and her work by visiting her website, louisayoung.co.uk. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. This is Adele Anderson on We Can Be Heroes, discussing my heroes with my good friend, Paul Burston. When you listen to him, you don't know whether you're listening to a man or a woman. He can just break your heart with the songs that he sings. I took an overdose. When I woke up the next morning, I remember they brought in the newspapers and on the front page was April Ashley. This is Neil Bartlett on We Could Be Heroes with Paul Burston. How did I discover Susie Sue? I've no idea, but that's how punk worked. The first time I heard Hong Kong Garden, just the rest was history. Seeing Betty walk across stage for the first time in a little red dress trimmed with tea strainers and a pair of second-hand red platform shoes. I think something inside me snapped and ever since that moment I've been a liberated person. This has been We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.